Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. Father God, we come open to what you want to say and do. Father, in whatever way uh, my heart and mind may get in the way, I pray that you would move me aside. And Father, I pray that you would use uh, the words of scripture and the words of my mouth to say the things that you want to say. And I'm so grateful that often I come up here and say one thing and what impacts somebody's heart is something totally different. And I know that that is you and the way that you speak directly to each and every heart. So God, whatever each of us need to hear from you this morning, I pray that we hear it. I pray that you would open our ears, our hearts, our minds to what you want to say, what you want to do, what you want to stir up, what you want to change and mold in us, what you want to encourage in us, what you want to affirm in us. Father, we come open. We come to sit before you and ask that you would have your way in us, in each one of us, and in us as a church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been biased against that when you showed up, whether because of your size or gender or age or whatever it may be, you just got the impression that the person you're coming to meeting with has already made some pretty particular decisions about you, what you're capable of or not capable of, and you can tell by kind of how the, the tone of the room changes or by the look they give you or whatever it may be, that, uh, that they've, they've made up their mind in some way. If you've had this experience, and I think most of us have in some way, you know that every single one of us hates it. Like nobody enjoys showing up and having people make a whole bunch of stereotype judgments about you and, and think they have you all figured out before you even have a chance to be you. We, we all hate it. Uh, I remember showing up for basketball tryouts my freshman year of high school, which admittedly was not a couple of years ago. Uh, but... I, I showed up, and, and I need you to understand a couple of things. One is that I had a major growth spurt my freshman year of high school. I just didn't have it in time for basketball season. Uh, and I had gotten glasses the summer before, and, and these glasses were 1997 big, okay? I mean, they, so I show up, and I'm 5'3", as a freshman in high school, maybe 100 pounds, uh, with, with glasses that weigh more than my biceps, okay? So I didn't exactly have future NBA written all over me. They lined us all up on the baseline. I've just moved to town a couple months earlier. I don't know the coaches. I don't know most of the people, most of the other players. They line us all up, and the coach, before he says anything, just looks down the line at every single one of us, and something in his face when he got to me made me go, oh yeah, I have no shot to make this team. <laughs> now in hindsight, I didn't have the skill level to make the team either, so I had no shot to make the team, but, 
But I was angry and indignant because he had decided that I was not going to make it. We hate that feeling. We hate that feeling. And yet, we also all do it. To some degree or another, we have different categories in our head that help us decide what is good and what is bad. We do this a lot with food, right? And, and by bias, I mean not just like, well, I, I don't know if, but like I have decided this thing is good or this thing is bad and you can't change my mind. For instance, a lot of people hate Brussels sprouts. I'm one of them. You can soak that thing in two pounds of butter and wrap it in bacon and I will peel off the bacon. Like I, I did try Brussels sprouts again the other day just to make sure though. Still don't like them. But we have these snap judgments that are like, okay, I know whatever you do to that thing, whatever fits in this category, I don't like it. We do it with food. We do it in neighborhoods. Well, that one is ritzy and so that means, well, that one's not one I want to get stuck in late at night do that with whole cities. (laughs) And there are reasons for this. These are things that help us figure out what is is good, or they, they help us stay with the things that we know are good. They help us with our pleasure of enjoying things, and they help us with our safety. We we just go, okay, well, this is an environment where where I'm not going to be safe. And so I just won't go there. there. There are places, maybe in our town, maybe in Portland or somewhere else where we go, I, I don't want to get caught there late at night. Maybe we say, well, I don't want a person who looks and is dressed like that to approach me in a dark alley. When we get into social contexts, this gets more complicated. It's one thing when it's Brussels sprouts and basketball players. When we get into social interactions, this gets more complicated. Because we are all naturally drawn towards tribalism. Naturally drawn towards people that we agree with, who talk and act and believe like we do. Safety in numbers, safety in familiarity. And we're drawn away from people that we have been taught are scary, whether that's being taught by our parents or by movies, uh, music, TV, whatever it may be. And if you say, no, 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 I don't have any of those biases. If somebody walks through that door over there in a hockey mask with a chainsaw on, you might go, it's a friendly woodcutter who's very careful about protecting his face more likely you would scream and run. Uh, and I personally, as a safety conscious person, would advise, advise going that direction. That seems like the right response to somebody bursting into our gathering with a hockey mask and chainsaw. Because that's what we've been taught is something that is scary and probably appropriately so. What about the newscaster or politician or pastor who says, those people over there, those people are bad. Those people are wrong and evil and you should avoid them. Those people are after your children. 
You should be afraid of them. How is that going to affect the way you engage with those people? And this is not a one-sided thing, right? We get this from all comers from all corners. How many of us adjust our social media feed to be people that we agree with? And I, I know this temptation. I, I have, in large part, backed off of social media because I wanted to like the people on my social media feed and they were making that really difficult. And so I had a couple options. One, I could cultivate my social media feed to just be people who agree with me and say all the things that make me feel better about my positions. Or I could step away. Often, we just go, oh, every time that person's post comes up, it makes me angry, so I'm going to delete them, block them, shove them away. And if we do that enough times, we end up with however many hours you may spend on Facebook or Instagram taking in information that is the things that you want to hear and that agree with you. How about our news stations? Are we giving a look to either side of an issue, or are we going straight to the people who we know are going to tell us a thing we want to hear? Do we do this with the people in our lives? Do we do this with our favorite Bible verses? I really like this one that says something that fits my personality and bias really well, and this one I really struggle with. So I'm just gonna quote this one and plaster this one all over the place, and we'll just hope nobody notices that this one is here too. We bring our biases to the table, and it colors the way we interact with everything from people to food to scripture. This morning, I wanna look at the writings of Jacob who was the brother of Jesus, and in English, we know him as James. And the book of James is a little collection of writings and sayings near the end of the New Testament. James was Jesus' brother, but did not believe in Jesus. None of Jesus' brothers did, did not believe he was who he said he was, until after he died and rose from the dead, and they went, whoa, if that guy that we remember from his awkward teenage phase with pimples can actually say he's going to die and rise from the dead and then do it, that might be something worth paying attention to. And eventually James led the Jerusalem church. And this might be a letter that he wrote to people who were following and listening to him, people he was pastor over. It doesn't quite read like a letter. It's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. So like Proverbs in the Old Testament, a collection of sayings, sometimes with little narrative threads through it, but often they seem a little bit disjointed. Uh, some believe that this is a collection of his writings and teachings that was actually put together by his disciples, by his closest followers after he died or right near his death to send out to the church as an encouragement of, of hey, here's the wisdom of James, even though he's gone. We, we have these wise things that he has said. So short little sayings, mostly, or short chunks of wisdom to encourage not only the believers of his day, but through God's grace and providence, us as well. 
including one of my favorites. And while I can absolutely be biased toward my favorites, I think this one is one of my favorites because of how much I needed to confront me with how bad I am at this. Uh, James uh, 1.19. James 1.19. And we're going to go through a few chapters of James today. James 1.19 says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I'm getting better at this. I'm better than I was three years ago, better than I was 10 years ago. It's so much easier to get defensive. And it's so much easier to tell you why I'm right and you're wrong. And to actually come and say, no, I actually want to hear what you have to say. Even though I'm pretty sure it's going to be uncomfortable for me, it may make me really defensive, It may make me want to shout at you for uh, thinking such things. I'm I'm going to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Our biases make this really hard. Because most of our biases, certainly the most significant ones and the ones dealing uh, with people, are based on some sort of fear. And our biases, based on fear, create an emotional reaction in us. That's why when I talk about engaging with trauma, there is fight, flight, or freeze, right? You're either ready to fight it, you want to run away in fear, or you just get stuck. It's because it creates an emotional reaction in us. And when we come up against our biases, or when we come to a conversation with our biases, I should say, The fears that drive those biases create an emotional engagement in the conversation. An emotional engagement like getting quick to be angry. To erupt, to get defensive, to fight back. We are called to be slow to speak, slow to get angry, quick to listen. Emotional reactions do not lead to thoughtful dialogue. Emotional reactions lead to a lot of shouting at each other, trying to shout over each other. Trying to say, well, if I, I can just be louder and faster talking than you, or typing than you, I can make this conversation go the way that I want it to go. I don't have to actually engage in a dialogue that might confront my biases or might tell me something I don't want to hear or might be uncomfortable or painful for me. To talk without listening is to assume that we have the right answers already. And you may be right. You may be right. You may absolutely have the right answers already. But to assume, going into a conversation, that you have all the right answers is to assume that your biases, your upbringing, your circumstances have led you to the perfect purest perspective, and and you can see things in a way that nobody else can, and you are absolutely correct. Now, I don't know about you, but I have more self-doubt than that. I don't think I have it all figured out. But when I come charging into a conversation ready to talk about why I'm right and you're wrong, that is exactly what I'm assuming. Or at least what my actions are reflecting. 
that I have the right answer and I just need you to hear me. And if you hear me long enough and hard enough, maybe you'll come to the right answer too. But I'm bringing biases to this conversation. I'm bringing biases of where I grew up, the circumstances I've been through, what faith and scripture have taught me, what the people in my life have taught me through faith and scripture that may, in fact, I'm sure, have their own perspective and biases in it. To come in ready to shout rather than being quick to listen lacks humility. It's, it's to assume that I've got it all straightened out and I just need you to hear me and then you can have it all right too. And James says that this isn't just a social issue. This isn't just about how we engage with each other. And this isn't just a psychological issue. It's not just all in my head. It's not all about how I process and see things. James says, no, this is a faith issue. Bias is not just a social issue. This is a faith issue. Bias is an issue in our faith. He starts chapter two this way. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Now, we maybe don't judge on clothes, and I can promise you, and promise you, uh, that if you walk in here with really fancy clothes, we're not going to give you a better seat. Partly because I'm not sure what better seat means. From the way people normally gather in here, it seems like against the back wall is about the best seat <laughs> people have. And so I, I don't really know how that works. But I promise you, we're not giving you a better seat just for being dressed fancy. And so we can look at this verse and go, check. We covered that one. Now, uh, it is also true um, that uh, I am dressed like this because study after study after study shows that we as people listen to people better if they are cleaned up and dressed up. And this is about as cleaned up and dressed up as I can get before it starts looking really silly. So this is what I got. We have these subconscious bias judgments. But okay, let's say that we, we're not judging based on clothes. And certainly as a church, feel free to, I mean, we've had people in pajamas, like wear whatever. I mean, wear something, please, but wear whatever. No judgment. But we do have some other biases that we have to deal with. We have this similarity bias that we talked about. You may not give somebody a better seat in your house or your church because of how they're dressed, but do you give somebody a better seat in your social media feed because of what they say? Do you give somebody a better seat in your living room, like say the TV screen, over and over and over again because you like what they say or because they entertain you? We, we have an entertainment bias we have to deal with, especially in today's world. 
where their acting or their music or their comedy or their ranting on my favorite news network entertains me, and therefore I'm going to listen to them and whatever they have to say. After all, they have a billion followers on Instagram. They must be saying really good things. That's a terrible way to choose the people we give authority to in our lives. Well, they're the person with the microphone. Therefore, we must give them authority. And Nope. How do we actually choose who we allow to influence us? Because if it is based on similarity or entertainment, there's no substance to that. There's no growth for us in that. We will continue to be entertained and we will continue to agree with ourselves. Just because somebody entertains us, makes us laugh, is that who we want to have, have a primary authority in our lives, have a better seat in our mind and in our heart? And I promise, whatever you spend the most time reading and watching will influence you. Whatever thoughts you rattle around in your head, this is why people talk about memorizing scripture, so that even when you're not sitting down and reading it, there are these thoughts going through your head of truth and good authority, God's authority, and not just whatever we're taking in. So if you spend most of your time on Facebook, or most of your time watching the news, or most of your time listening to podcasts, what are those voices telling you? These are the things that you are allowing to have influence and authority in your life. What are they saying? Could be any number of things. Could be different for everybody. But to mindlessly take it in without understanding the way that it confirms our biases is, is to miss the authority that we are giving those things. James, of course, calls us to give God the ultimate authority in our lives. And he says God's ultimate rule, the ultimate rule for how we engage with each other is this. Skipping ahead to verse 8 of chapter 2. He says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as Yourself. That word royal, this is the only place actually that Greek word shows up in all of scripture, but it means premium, supreme, royal, top, ultimate. The ultimate law, love your neighbor as yourself, which of course lines up with what Jesus said as well. And this is where it becomes a faith issue. Verse nine, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law, which I didn't know was a debate. And I don't think James's church were having this debate of like, well, if... If I didn't sleep with somebody, but I killed somebody, am I still okay? No. No, actually, they're both wrong. And I, I think we all pretty universally agree these two things, at least as we're coming under God's authority, those of us seeking to do that, we go, these things are wrong. Okay, agreed. And James is saying, 
to try to pull love your neighbor as yourself out of that list is the same thing. He said, to fail to love your neighbor as yourself is a sin. You are committing a sin. And sin is not too strong a word for this. In fact, the way we toss it around our culture, maybe it's not a strong enough word. Favoritism is failing to love your neighbor as yourself. And it is a sin. Favoritism to any authority other than the authority of God. And I I don't mean the church, I don't mean a pastor, I mean authority of God. I don't mean tradition or government or any document other than scripture. Favoritism to any of that is a sin. Favoritism to any other human being one over another is totally understandable. It's really natural. We're drawn towards those things. And it's a sin. It's a failure to love our neighbor well. And we need to recognize it as such and not just seek to justify it or explain it away. So what do we do about it? James has a couple of things that he calls us to do. A couple of directives on how we love our neighbor better and how we uh, come with humility to our conversations and and how we deal with the sin of favoritism in our lives. And and the first one is this, I'll sum it up this way. It's good works, to do good works with honor and humility and wisdom. As we seek to love our neighbor well, We do that by doing good works with honor and humility and wisdom. Here's how James says it in chapter 3, starting at verse 13. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Again, this is God's wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Okay, a lot to unpack here. Wisdom, wisdom of God, leads to humility. Because if you are wise to the ways of God, if you are coming to God and saying, God, would you teach me? You realize that God knows a whole lot more than you do. And to step into any conversation or relationship pretending like you are the one who has it all figured out is to try to take God's place in that conversation. To compare our wisdom to the wisdom of God is to go wow, there's a lot I don't know. I'm really glad I don't know it. So we're able to engage with the humility of knowing that we don't have it all figured out, which leads us to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. James says if you are bitter and selfishly motivated and... um, there, I want to be careful with how I use this word. There is an epidemic 
of bitterness in our society right now. It seems to be everywhere, and it is spreading. And we can be people who spread it if we choose to. By looking out for ourselves first, by being driven by the ambition of figuring out whatever works best for me, whatever is most convenient or powerful for me, and it will make us bitter when we can't get it. And we will pass that bitterness on to the people around us instead of loving our neighbors well. James says if you're bitter and selfishly motivated, just name it. Just call it that. Say something. Confess it. Talk about it. Acknowledge it to yourself. Because if you have ever been bitter, you know that bitterness that is allowed to sit and root around in our mind and our hearts and just allowed to swirl in there is like an acid that just eats at everything in us. And it just creates more bitterness and more ambition of making sure that I look out for me because somebody's got to. We got to name it and talk about it. Confess it and deal with it. He says in verse 15, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now there has been a lot of talk recently about what is or is not demonic. And I'm not going to get into uh, a list. (laughs) Here's what I I do want to say. We spend a lot of time dealing with the demonic things in other people and the evil that we see outside of us. Whether you've grown up in church or not, you are likely familiar with Jesus' story about taking care of the plank in your own eye instead of the speck of dust in somebody else's. And he uses this ridiculous picture because it is that ridiculous to try to take care of the little speck in somebody else's eye while you got a big plank waving out out of your head. We need to deal with the evil and demonic in the world around us, for sure. We've got to call it out. Part of being God's people, part of searching for more of the kingdom of God, trying to to lead people, more people into the kingdom of God, is going to be calling out the evil we see around us. We're going to need to do this in concentric circles. And, And here's what I'm trying to, hopefully this picture helps. Have you ever seen ripples created by yourself? Imagine you're standing in a river or lake or whatever. There are are ripples that are going out. We spend a lot of time dealing with the ripples way out there and shouting about how all those people need to get their demonic stuff figured out while we are failing to love our neighbors. We as Jesus-following people need to deal with the demonic and evil in the world, starting with ourselves and our families and our homes and our church and our churches and the world (laughs) and then the world. For too many decades, the church has been shouting about all the evil out there (laughs) with a big plank in our heads. No wonder the world has stopped listening to what we have to say. We look silly with this plank waving around out of our eye, trying to help them with the speck in theirs. 
Are there awful, demonic, horrible things going on in the world? Yes. Do we need to deal with them and call them out? Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to deal with the demonic and evil in us and in our homes and in our churches. These are the places of influence that God has given us to confess and own and say, God, I need you to step into this. I need your forgiveness and grace. And then we need to step into those places and do good works with humility that says, I don't have this all figured out and I'm not perfect. Being as honorable as we can be to say, I'm dealing with mine the best I can and I wanna help you with yours. And with as much wisdom as we can glean from God because it is his wisdom that's gonna address those things. And here's what I mean. James says in verse 17 and 18, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. In other words, willing to be quick to listen and slow to speak, yielding to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Church, can we be people who plant seeds of peace and harvest righteousness? Well, if we're going to harvest righteousness, we're going to have to deal with the evil in us. If we're going to plant seeds of peace, That's different than planting and sowing seeds of division and anger and bitterness and selfish ambition. Can we sow seeds of peace in our church, in our families, in our community? What kind of harvest would that carry? Again, we need to deal with the evil in the world around us. It is not sowing seeds of peace to turn a blind eye to things that are going on, to pretend like they're not happening, to pretend like there aren't kids who are being picked up on the side of the freeway and sold to do incredibly awful things, to pretend like there isn't starvation and death around the world and in our own backyard. Sowing seeds of peace may mean being disruptive, may mean there's some systems that need to get checked. That whatever it is that allows kids to end up on the side of the road, whatever it is that allows them to get picked up and sold, has got to get disrupted. It's not sowing seeds of peace to say, well, I want to be nice to them. It is saying, this person, this kid, this adult who's come out of that mess needs peace in their life. How do I sow seeds of peace in their life so that they can have a harvest of righteousness? It's about motivation. Are we driven by us? Are we driven by what works out best for us? Are we driven by wanting to see peace and God's work in the lives of the people around us? So we do good works with humility. And we deal with the evil in the world, starting with the evil in us. James calls on us to humble ourselves before God. This is the second thing, right? We, we engage with humility and honor and wisdom, and we humble ourselves before God. James says this in chapter four. 
So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. And we love to quote that part. Come close to God, God will come close to you. And it's so true and it is so good. And the verse continues. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord. In our failure to love our neighbor, in our turning to other authorities before God because we like what they say, in failing to recognize our own evil, we have sinned. We have turned against God. And we need to be heartbroken over that sin. Legitimately heartbroken. Now look, James came from a very emotional culture. So you're not a crier. Okay, fine. This does not have to be an outward expression, although if you need to, please do. This doesn't have to be a performance of emotion. This does need to be legitimate heartbreak over the ways that we have turned away from God and failed to love our neighbors. So here's the good news. I'm going to read the verse right before and right after what I just read. James writes, and God gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. He will come close to you, and he will love you, and he will give you his grace and his forgiveness, and he will lift you up. As we seek him for our peace, he will harvest righteousness in our lives that we don't deserve that comes through the sacrifice and the love of Jesus. So we're going to spend a little time here going before God together, each of us individually and us as a collective group to worship, to reflect to take communion. So as the worship team comes up, I want to point us toward this time of reflection and confession, of seeking God for grace, of coming humbly before him and asking for his forgiveness. This is going to look different for everybody. We're going to have an opportunity to sing You're going to have an opportunity to take communion whenever you feel led to. So again, you've got that little uh, cup there of uh, bread, if you can call it that, and juice. And somewhere in this time, if Jesus' sacrifice for you has meant something in your life, that you believe his death has washed your sins, has led the way for your forgiveness, that his resurrection has brought you new life, At some point in these next few minutes, these next couple of songs, feel free to take communion. Feel free to sing and worship. Uh, There are going to be a couple of us in the back, out in the welcome area there. And if you would like somebody to pray over you for God's forgiveness, for courage to figure out how to love your neighbor better, 
for whatever it may be, for healing in your own heart, mind, or body, we would love to pray for you. So that's available to you. We're just gonna have some time here over the next few minutes, few songs, to pray, to reflect, to take communion as you choose, to humble ourselves before God. So as we do that, will you pray with me? Father, we come before you knowing that we are in need of your grace. God, we have failed in some way to love our neighbor well. And God, I'm amazed that we don't come to you and you berate us and make us feel guilty and tell us how terrible we are. You put your arm around us. And you say, that that looks like it hurt. Looks like it hurt you. Looks like it hurt some people that I love. And you give us your love and your forgiveness and grace. So God, we come recognizing our sin, recognizing our need for your grace, humbly asking for your forgiveness, asking for you to stir up in us good works, stir up in us some humility to listen and to love better, stir up in us a desire to follow you into whatever relationships and places you're leading us. We come before you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.